Well, good morning, everybody. You can take your seats. I see that you do that anyway. Good for you. Good to see you all this morning. I'm going to start by asking you a sort of self-reflective question this morning. I want you to take this very, very seriously. No, I'm serious. I thought you were laughing. Oh, all right. How soon after you wake up do you start complaining? I see a lot of you do that, don't you? And uh, there is a lot to complain about, isn't there? I mean, people are complaining about the weather today. Can you believe it? Because it's not snow. Please. This is good. That's the number one complaint of Americans is the weather. So here's the interactive portion. I've got to prime the pump a little bit. Um, what do you think is the next complaint Americans give? What? Your health? Yeah? Come on, you go to the gas pump, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You forgot about that, didn't you? How many of you complain about taxes? There you go. How many of you complain about your bosses? Raise your hands. Jamie, my hand's not up. Just so you know. Just so you know. We even complain about our church. Not this one, of course. All right. We complain. We, we come by it naturally. We don't, even have to, we don't even have to think about it. We just do it quite naturally. And I was so surprised to discover that there is a science behind complaining. Some Scandinavian scientists, of course, did this. They studied what happens to the synapses of our brains when we complain. And it's like they build little bridges to other synapses, and they build a bridge, and this synapse, and that one goes, and this one goes, and they build this entire network of a, a mind that's on fire for complaining. And then you know what happens? We complain to one another. And then we get that thing rolling, and, and it's called mirroring one another. And we start complaining about everything under the sun, and pretty soon we're all completely depressed. Well... The Bible, believe it or not, commands our emotions. And we don't think that's possible, but the Bible does, doesn't it? It says, be joyful, be grateful. It also says, be content. So we're going to look at contentment this morning as we enter a whole new year where we're not going to complain anymore. Amen? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much uh, for your word because it is so instructive on so many levels. And we come to you this morning and we ask that you will open your word to us, fill our hearts with your word and your love, so that we can be obedient servants of the Lord in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at this, this subject of contentment. I've, I've struggled with it all my life. In fact, one of, the, one of the very first verses that sort of came home to me was from Ephesians uh, uh, 13, verse 5. Be content with what you have. Oh, great, right? That, so that's been like 40 years of trying to do this. So, you know, you're not alone. Contentment and discontentment is simply, well, I won't say simply, but it is a matter of the focus of the heart. If we're focused on our circumstances for contentment, we're going to fail. It's not going to be satisfactory. It's like building your house 
on, the sta- uh, on sand. Just think about Peter for a minute. He was focused on Jesus, tell me to walk to you. He walks to you, and then he looks at the circumstances, and he freaks out, and he starts to sink. You know, if Jesus didn't reach out for him, he'd be swimming with the fishes today. So looking at our circumstances is not going to bring us contentment. So what do we have to do? Now, understand, there's, there's nothing wrong with pleasant circumstances, but that's simply not enough. So here is a definition that I found from an old dead guy back in the 1600s. His name is Jeremiah Burroughs, and this is sort of a modification of his particular definition. This is it. Contentment springs from inward satisfaction and trust in God, resting confidently in his fatherly wisdom, leading to a hope-filled submission to him and glad delight in his provision in every situation. Does I read that again? Contentment springs from inward satisfaction and trust in God, resting confidently in his fatherly wisdom, leading to a hope-filled submission to him and a glad delight in his provision and in every situation. So what we're dealing with here is something that has to be learned. Even Paul said this. He said, in every situation, I am learning. I have learned how to be content. So since we don't come, at, come by it naturally, we have to learn it. So what we need is a good model And uh, there is a good model of someone who is basically a new Christian. I mean, this is Abram. This is chapter 13 in Genesis. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there or use the Pew Bible. It'll be up on the screen. But at this point in Abram's life, his name hasn't yet been changed. His name is still Abram. And he is just, um, well, basically one chapter away from learning how to walk with God. And so we're going to look at how God works in his life to bring him to a place of fulfilling this definition, trusting and resting in the fatherly wisdom of God. And so let's read, uh, starting with verse 1 in chapter 13. Oh, I'm sorry, I missed that one. Okay, let's do this. So Abraham went up from Egypt. Now that's important, we'll get back to it in a minute. He went up from Egypt. You're going to wonder, what's he doing there? He and his wife and all that he had with Lot with him into the Negev. And now Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. To the place where he had made an altar at the first. That's the first time he entered the land of Canaan. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So what we have here is the background to this story of how Abram is going to learn how to put his trust in God. Uh, He... He enters the land of Canaan. God is showing him, here's the land I'm going to give you. But there was a famine in the land at one point, and Abram freaked out, and he went to Egypt. Whenever you read that in the Old Testament, like, like Israel is looking to Egypt or Assyria or somebody else uh, for strength, they're not looking to God. They're looking somewhere else, and this is always an offense to God. So what Abram does, he goes down to Egypt in order to uh, you know, get some food or whatever. Things go horribly wrong. He... His, the king of Egypt wants to take his wife into his harem. He says, is this woman your wife? He says, no, 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 no. She's just my sister. Go ahead, right? That didn't work out very well uh, for the marriage. So eventually he is delivered from that situation and he comes back into 
the land of Canaan. And then God starts to bless him because the land of Canaan that God is giving to his people, starting here, is going to be the land of blessing. That's the whole idea. Inside these boundaries is the presence of God and his blessing. And so the blessing of God comes to Abram and to Lot. Their, their herds are growing, livestock is multiplying, and now there's a fight. Isn't it interesting that the blessing of God leads to the feud between these two families? So Abram, being a wise enough man, realizes this isn't really a good thing, and he's going to do something that um, avoids any conflict with his nephew. And that's what we read in, in uh, uh, verse 8 and 9. Then uh, Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we're family. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. So if you take the left hand, I'll go to the right. And if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. So what Abraham, or Abram is doing at this point is creating a culture of peace between his family and Lot's family. In fact, he's doing what Paul tells us to do in the book of Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what, what Abram's doing is he's, he's prioritizing Lot's choice. He said, go ahead, Lot, you get you get to choose. Abram had the first right of refusal, but he lets Lot go ahead and make the choice. And I, I, my thinking on this now is that he was, Abram, was able to do this because he had a keen sense of God's sufficiency. He knew that God would not abandon him in, in lack. But even if that were to happen, God would sustain him through that lack. So he must have had that somewhere in the back of his mind. He had already experienced it in Egypt, and now he's applying it to this situation he finds himself in. And so Lot makes the choice, but Abram is actually expressing his confidence in God's ability to give him what was needed. And this is the most important lesson that we can learn as Christians. Over the years, this is the one lesson that my wife and I have had to come back to over and over and over again, and that is, is God sufficient? Do you believe it? Do you trust it? Well, Abram chose to trust God's supremacy and sufficiency, and uh, he even trusted him through Lot's own choices. Now, not only did Abram uh, put Lot first, but he was able to do that because of a presupposition he had that he had recently learned about God by being down in Egypt. And that starts in verse 10. And Lot lifted his eyes and he saw the Jordan Valley. It was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. That's, that's a reference to Eden in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 of Genesis. It was like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Here's, the, here's an important line. That was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot's looking at Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's a lush and lovely place. Green everywhere. Trees, fruit trees, flowers, everything. It's a beautiful place. It's like the Garden of Eden. That's what Lot is seeing. So that's what Lot chose. Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east. 
Thus, they separated from each other. And there's an important sentence, Abraham settled in the land of Canaan. The implication here is that Lot went outside the land of Canaan. Remember, outside the land of God's blessing. But Abram stayed in the land of God's blessing. And he never left it again. So Lot settled among the cities of the valley. And he moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. You know those movies? We see them and, and like there's a real dangerous moment and you hear, you hear the doom, 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 doom. That's what's going on here. No, that's not the sound. That's not the one I'm thinking of. I don't know. Can you kind of like forward that to something else? I'm just, that's just too light. This is heavy. Dun, 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 dun. Okay. This is a chilling part of the story because of the words that Moses, who wrote this, is using. He's using, lifted up his eyes, and he saw. These are the same words that are used to describe what Eve did in the garden. Adam and Eve, they looked at and they saw this tree they were not supposed to eat. It's exactly the same phrase, the same words. We are being told this is a problem. He's looking at the greener grass on the other side. It's well watered. It's a land like the garden. Lot fell into the foolishness of Adam and Eve, uh, pleasing something pleasing to the eyes, but they were completely blind to the dangers that lay behind it. Lot, when you trace his movements from this point forward, he moves into some like suburbs of Sodom and Gomorrah. The next time we see him, he's moved into the city center of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the next time we see him, he's in the gates of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah with the elders of the city. He's one of the elders. Things never went well for Lot when he was outside the boundaries of God's blessing. In fact, you remember, if you remember, God had to extricate them out of there and his two daughters who married men from the city, the men would not leave, the daughters and, the, and the, his wife left, but his wife, when she left, she loved the razzle-dazzle of Sodom and Gomorrah. And remember what happened to her when she looked back longingly and thought, boy, I'm really going to miss that place. Stone. She turned to stone. I think we need to put a clock up there in the back of the room so that when preachers who preach too long like me you know, can, can kind of see what's going on. But if we do that, because people turn around and look, I'm a, I want to make sure there's a sign underneath, and it says, remember Lot's wife. <laughs> so I just want to give you a fair warning. You complain, you could be turned to stone. I'm just saying. All right. That, that was just to lighten the load a little bit here. It's not part of the text. It's just part of my weird way of thinking. The difference between these two men shows up in the choices that they made. Lot chose to live outside the presence of God. Abraham stayed within the presence of God. Lot chose to provide for himself, and Abraham lived in the provision of God. Lot thought he was going to get a, parad a paradise, but what he got was horrible. Horrible. You know, if you, look at, if you look at the geography of where Sodom and Gomorrah uh, was, there's no green there anymore. It's all brown dirt. Nothing grows, nothing lives. That's how thorough God's judgment was on those cities. And that's where Lot chose to live. 
All right, so Abram's uh, next lesson, um, he's developing some reliance on the promises of God. Verse 13, it says, um, the, the Lord uh, said to, is that right? Oh, let me go back. There we go. Um, so the Lord said uh, to Abram, after Lot separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, your offspring could also be counted. Arise and walk through the length of the land and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Now certainly, this is a reminder of God's faithfulness to Abram. He's reminding him he's a faithful God. But it's also a, um, a restatement of the blessing of God that he pronounced to Abraham back in the early part of chapter 12. God told Abram he was going to bless him in many ways. He's going to have a great name. He's going to have many descendants. Like you read there, it's like the dust of the earth. If it could be counted, there's going to be that many of your descendants. You're also going to have a land of your own. But the other part of that blessing was you're going to become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And that's exactly what happened. And we're sitting here today because of the promise of God. He kept it. He blessed Abraham and Abram and Abraham. And here we are because the promise to Abraham was a seed, and that seed was Jesus Christ who brought salvation to the nations. And that's why any of us are here, or anyone who is saved all around the world. It's because God kept his promise to Abraham right from the start. So he's learning that God is faithful. But the thing to notice here is that nothing in Abram's life has changed. Not a thing. Not a thing. He doesn't own the land. The Canaanites own the land. He doesn't have descendants, let alone one descendant. His wife is still barren. The only plot of land ever that Abram will own is the plot in where, where he's buried. That's it. He never owns the land. So the final lesson takes Abram back to the beginning of his journey in the promised land. Now I'm taking verses 3 and 4 from the first part of the chapter and adding the last verse, 18, to it so you can see what Abram is doing. In 3 and 4 he says, he journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. That's the first time we read that in the scriptures, somebody calling on God's name. And then verse 18 says, so Abram moved his tent. After all this had taken place, he moved his tent. And he came and he settled at the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So chapter 13 begins with Abram, Abram at worship, calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, that word call can mean prayer, it can mean worship, and it also means to meet with God. He met with God. And at the end of this chapter, he's doing exactly the same thing again. And I think it's because he understood that he needed to guard this relationship from being hijacked by all these other distractions in his life. Now, what can we take away from this curriculum that God took Abram through and apply to our own lives? Well, I'll form it in three, three different questions. 
The first question is, do you, first of all, do you have a theology of enough? Now, here's what I mean by that. Abram put Lot's interests ahead of his own, and I think that action opened up the door for God to step through and to give Abraham, uh, Abram the blessing that God wanted for him. He stepped back and let, and let Lot have it, and then God gave him what Abram would need in order to please God in his life. God was being faithful to him. So, are you convinced of the sufficiency of God for your life? Or are you like me? You're still learning. How many of you are still learning? Of course we are. We're always going to learn this lesson, and it's an important one. So what happens to us when we are convinced? When we are convinced we are free from the anxieties about money, about jobs, about even health, we are free to think uh, biblically, uh, spiritually minded, not earthly minded. Colossians 3.1, it says, set your affections on things above where Christ is. We're free to really enjoy the good gifts of God without them possessing us. Uh, Martin Luther one time said something like this. He said, Every, everything that God has given me, I, I've had in my hands and I've lost it all, but everything I put in his hands, I'll have forever. And that's really the attitude of every believer. We are free to trust that the more we know Jesus, the more we'll see his divine power at work in our, in our living. So how do we actually apply that? It all sounds really good, but what do we got to do? Well, here's, here's three suggestions. Number one, when you're watching TV, you're listening to the radio, you're hearing or reading some ads in, the, in any newspaper or anything like that or online or whatever it is you're doing, always be skeptical of those ads. It's sort of like looking at Sodom and Gomorrah when it's green. You know, the, the, the one ad that I absolutely, I mean, I hate it, but I love it because it's a great illustration, is this ad where it's a snowy Vermont kind of scene and a husband and wife and, and they're all standing in the snow and he looks at her lovingly and says, I got, a, I got a gift for you and he blows and out comes this cute little dog. You know the one I'm talking about? How many of you have seen that? All right? And then she looks at him and she's loving on the dog and she looks at her husband and says, I got something for you too and, and she blows, uh, well, she didn't even actually whistle, it was a fake, but that's just me. And, and then all of a sudden through a huge snowbank comes a brand new GMC Sierra. Boom! And he goes over and he hugs his truck. And I'm thinking, you're an idiot. I had a Sierra once. That was when gas was like 250 and it cost me 60 bucks to fill up. I'm sorry, 10 miles a gallon is a ripoff. Those ads are false prophets. Just think of them that way. Listen, if you use Colgate or Crest, your teeth may not get so white and you'll be disappointed. I know. Secondly, banish from your thinking, if I only get or if this only happens then, just forget that. Forget that. Be content with what you have. And the third thing is determine to receive your situations as God's assignments for your life. What's God doing in your life at this point? Think about that. Pray about that. Ask God to show you. What, what, am, I, what am I supposed to do with, with you know, this job loss, this sickness, this, this uh, uh, prodigal child, whatever? God, what's the assignment here? Secondly, are you instrument rated? Now, pilots will understand what this is. These are pilots who are able to um, fly from point A to point B without ever looking out the window. They're just looking at their instruments and they're going somewhere. Now, this is especially helpful when, you know, 
it's, cloud deck is like 30,000 feet down to 500 feet. If you've ever been in a storm and you've been landing and the plane's going down, you know, I'm going down, I'm going down, I don't see anything yet, Where, where's the runway? They know. They're looking at the instruments. They're going to get you there. God's promises are the instruments that we need to have that instrument rating, to just trust the word of God. We tell, we tell people that we coach all the time that, you know, six, seven, eight words of God's word will change your life. Several years ago, uh, this is back in the 80s, Nita and I were in our 30s, it was Sunday morning, and uh, she heard what she thought was a gunshot went off right near her ear, and it turned out to be a, a brain aneurysm. And uh, I guess one of the telltale signs is that your pupil gets blown. It gets elongated this way. I don't know how she did it, but she got up, put on her makeup, dressed for church. We walked into, uh, walked into church, and there was a, a, a nurse who, who uh, was one of uh, an, an elder's wife, and she took one look at Nita, and she said, get in my car. We're going to the hospital. Indeed, Nita had a brain aneurysm. She had a ton of tests that day and the next day and the third day. I had to stay at church. I couldn't go because of we were hosting some musical group or something. And so finally I got there. And, and uh, a few days before this event took place, Nita was reading in Isaiah, Isaiah 57. It was verse 15. And all she could remember was, no weapon of warfare formed against you will prosper. Seven words. And she hung on to those words for six, eight, nine months, all through her recovery. She lost hearing in one, in one ear. Uh, she lost her, her balance. I mean, she had to go through, you know, therapy for that. And, and it was totally frustrating. But she hung on to those seven words because she trusted God was going to pull her through. She trusted that God would not let her die so she could raise her own babies. That's what she said. We fly by God's word. You know, you've been praying for somebody for 50 years, you've got sickness, you've got prodigals, or the worst thing that could possibly happen to parents is the death of a baby girl before she ever gets to say the word mama. How do you deal with that? No weapon formed against you will prosper. That's what we do. That's the Bible's answer. Feast on the promises of God and his word to give you endurance. It's the ballast. It's the stabilizing part of your life so that you don't fall into bitterness and thinking that God is not powerful enough. So the third question is, do you meet regularly with God? Returning to the place of worship. That's what Abram did. He went there to, in order to guard this relationship with God so that nothing would hijack his heart from God or from the blessing of God. He met regularly with God. We do that in the word, in prayer, in private worship, in corporate worship, even in conversations with one another. Now, the question is, is there a proper way to complain since we do it so naturally? Well, there's a Christian way to complain. So let's take a look at what that looks like. Oh, I'm always pushing the wrong button. Sorry, folks. Here's the proper way to complain. First of all, to God. Just go to the Psalms. Look at the examples of David. I'm sorry, but every now and then I think David is a whiner. 
I mean, he says things like this. I beg out loud for mercy from the Lord. No one pays attention to me. There's no one who cares about my life. Sounds like, you know, I'm going to go out and eat worms. You know that kind of thing? That's what David is saying. He's saying this to God. Listen to me when I complain. God, I'm afraid of my enemies. Save my life. Psalm 64. I love Asaph. He's my guy. See, Psalm 73, that's my psalm. It's like, this is where I live. Hey, God, how come all those bad guys, you know, people who hate you, they get all the blessings. Their lives look like they never have a problem. They get all of the advancements. They make a lot of money. They've got seven homes all around the country, and you keep blessing them. And I, I'm struggling just to pay the bills. What's going on, God? That's Asaph. He's my guy. And then Asaph what does he do? He worships God, and then he understands. Well, that's a pretty slippery slope over there. I think I'll stay over here. That's, that's what we do. We complain to God. God answers us. Every situation in life is fair game for complaining to God in prayer. Now, there is another way to complain. This is, this is one that comes with a condition. We can complain to one another and perform a ministry to one another as believers. So here's what normally happens, you know. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tell you how awful my life is right now. And the car broke down and the kids are crazy and my boss is on my back all the time about something. And you're sitting there listening to this and you go, yeah, I know, I got one of those too. That's not your job. That's not your job. Your job, as you listen to a brother or sister or friend of yours who is complaining or venting to you, is to listen to what they're saying with one ear. Listen to the pain. Listen to the heartache. Listen to the frustration. I get that. But with the other ear, listen to what you know God has said about all of these things and remind them of the goodness and mercy and the sufficiency of God. At least, at the very least, before that conversation is over, pray for them. That's okay to do that. But if all you ever do is complain, 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 all you've done is fill the atmosphere with these complaining pollutants. That's no good. Has anybody ever done anything good by complaining? No. So let's do that with one another. Make a pact with one another. You know, you have a close friend, make that pact with them. This is how you will approach that subject. All right, so for a final, for a final thought here, Complaining is mostly about dissatisfaction with things in our life that are big or small. C.S. Lewis' uh, comment about this is a very good reminder. He said, if we find in us a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. And indeed we are. We are made for the kingdom of God. That's where we should be thinking about our life. So Christian... Brother and sister, remember that when your circumstances are trying to hijack your heart, your truest home is not here. It is above. Look to things above where Christ is. Now, for the Christian who is kind of in the kingdom and kind of in the world, you know, going back and forth, you know, not really this, not really that, that's not a good place to be. That's really aggravating make a decision one way or the other way make a decision 
Don't live in that waffly land in between two things. You need to make a decision one way or the other without having, with, with both feet in one or the other. My hope is your both feet will be in the kingdom of God. For those of you who are not Christians who may be here this morning, I want you to think about this. Your dissatisfaction is God speaking to you about his satisfaction. Maybe you never made that connection before. But it's like Lewis said, and it's true. If you're dissatisfied with what's going on here, it's because you weren't made to live here forever. You were made to live in the kingdom of God forever. And so use that dissatisfaction in order to bring you to the Lord himself. Ask him to show you who he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you that uh, you never fail, you never abandon your children. You know us, you know our needs, you know what we're made of. And you answer all of our needs with the, the riches that are in Christ. Well, Lord, we want to learn contentment in this year, to learn more about it, to become more content, because we are more present with our friends and family when we are content, when we're not stressing over the things we don't have. We'll be more generous with what we do have. We'll be more grateful for what you give us. So we ask that you will supersize our hearts in this coming year to grow in the grace of contentment. Rescue us from our small views of who you are and your love and your goodness and free us from our unbelief. Grant us to become so satisfied in Christ that it'll be like we've been overwhelmed by his glory, by his riches, and by his love. We pray this in Jesus' name and everybody said,